This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good afternoon, good morning, good whatever time of day it is. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. Can you dig it? I can. Okay, here we go, everybody. So this episode this week is going to be very dark, depressing, uh, sad, like just every every bad thing that you can imagine one of my podcast episodes being this episode is going to be. However, I feel that today is going to be a very, very unique day because not a lot of people have talked about what we're going to talk about today, but as you know with this podcast, we are going to talk about the things that not a lot of people enjoy talking about. And this one, I believe, is not only something that people are avoiding talking about, it's very, very fascinating in multiple ways. And I like fascinating things. I like interesting things. I don't like to be bored. I don't like to do any of this other kind of you know weird shit, whatever happens. But I think this is a very, very interesting, urgent not just, you know, a um, political issue. It's not a political issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a worldwide cultural, biological issue. I, I think that, you know, we get so caught up in the minutia of the day-to-day -day and all the other kind of non-important, non-sequitur stuff that kind of goes on with, you know, the world and, you know, people in the media and everything like that, that we get moved off of a track where we can actually see what's going on and how it's going to affect a large amount of people, in case in this case, all people, in many, many different ways. And today, I want to take an opportunity to talk about something that I am terrified of, personally, that I think is very real. It's not, you know, hypothetical. It's numbers. It's data in a lot of ways. And it's also anecdotes, which we'll get to later. But this is going to be a very, very interesting look into kind of centering on things that are important, I think, versus centering on things that are not important and why we need to shift our lens to the important and away from the non-important. So with that being said, here we go. One of the many sad truths of our society is that the most necessary people are often not even close to the ones we hear from the most. They often frequent obscure circles, shunned by the rest of society that doesn't want to hear the pain that they will inevitably inflict on them because of the scary reality of the truths that they share. However, we must hear from them. We must elevate them. The truth, not, quote, your or, quote, my truth, is what our society needs now more than ever. Occasionally, however, one of these obscure but incredibly important people rises to the surface. It can happen by curiosity, by happenstance, or by simple dumb luck. However, when they do, and when you hear what they have to say, there isn't any going back. What they've unearthed is so important, so consequential, so earth-shattering, 
that to not look directly at it and face it would be ignorance at its kindest and destruction at its meanest. On April 21st, 2021, one of those moments happened. On that day, Joe Rogan had a relatively unknown woman named Dr. Shanna Swan on his show. For Rogan, it was a relatively short podcast, stretching barely past over a half an hour, or an hour and a half, excuse me. However, during that relatively short period, Dr. Swan's work was enough to stun the masses that listened and watched around the world. Shanna Swan is a lifetime environmental epidemiologist, working in the field as both a practitioner and a researcher for decades. Dr. Swan's work has a specific focus, that of reproductive development and disruption. Swan, like most academic researchers, has toiled in obscurity for most of her life, and she was happy about this, I'm pretty sure. Most scientists are, unlike the wannabe, quote, science celebrities in our expert class that parade around TV exclaiming their virtue to people, most actual scientists who do actual science are perfectly fine with this type of life. Most of science is boring, drab, and dull, because that's what science should strive to be. But all of that changed for Swan in 2017, because on July 25th of that year, Swan and her colleagues published a bombshell research paper entitled, quote, Temporal Trends in Sperm Count, a Systematic Review and Meta-Regression Analysis. The paper, in and of itself, was absolutely massive. It took years to compile, referenced 185 other studies, and surveyed over 45,000 healthy men. Like all good studies, it was wide-ranging in sample and accounted for error and variables to near every degree imaginable. The goal of the study was, in the researchers' words, to quote, provide a systematic review and meta-regression analysis of recent trends in sperm counts as measured by sperm concentration, SC, and total sperm count, TSC, and their modification by fertility and geographic group, end quote. In non-scientific terms, Swan and her colleagues set out to provide an inside look into the trends of male reproductive health across time. In plainer terms, has men's ability to reproduce gotten better, worse, or stayed the same? When the study concluded, Swan, her colleagues, and the world had the answer. And the answer was that men's reproductive health had gotten worse, much worse. Over the past four decades, dating back to the 1970s, sperm levels in men in Western countries had plummeted by more than 50%. In addition, both men's and women's reproductive health were being affected environmentally. Swan and her team's conclusion to the study was that, should this trend continue, humanity would be headed for extinction. Not by artificial intelligence, not by nuclear holocaust, not by plague, not by devastating world war, but by our own ability to reproduce. We were, and are, extinguishing ourselves. Now this might be hard for you to believe and or stomach when you first hear it. It was for me, when thinking about it, it doesn't seem possible. Humanity's population has doubled in the last 50 years. We've gone from 1 billion people to nearly 8 in the last 150. We hear, listen to, and see sex everywhere in nearly every aspect of our lives. It's all over the place. We couldn't avoid it if we tried to. But those are the positives. Those are easy to talk about. It's much more difficult to have a conversation around the negatives of this topic. And unfortunately, as proven by Swan and her colleagues, there are many. This may not be a big story now, but to say that it won't be in 20 years is not true. Here's why. America's population, although increasing, is also getting older, much older. As the baby boomers age into retirement and the Gen Xers get closer to retirement, a massive shift in our sociological trends will take place. Much of the wealth in our country will get transferred to younger generations. 
Some have estimated this number to be around $30 trillion, with a T. Many of the positions of power in this country in business, government, and other sectors will have to be filled by newcomers. Large portions of knowledge will either be passed on or lost. And this ordinarily would not be that much of an issue. We would simply have the young people do what they've always done. Take over for the old, improve what they could, and hold on to the traditions that worked. This is the circle of life. This is how all civilizations advance. The old preserve the institutions. The young people carry on their successes and improve upon their failures. However, there is one massive variable that is going unaccounted for. The lack of people to replace those that will leave. The magic number that you have to remember when it comes to this topic is 2.1. 2.1 is what is called the, quote, population replacement rate. The population replacement rate is the amount of children per family that it will take in order to successfully, quote, replace the existing population of a particular demographic of people when they begin to die. In layman's terms, in order to replace America's population successfully, each family will have to do a little more, need to have a little more than two kids per house to do so. But this isn't happening. According to recent data, the current replacement rate is in America is around 1.6, a whopping 25% off where we need to be in order to keep the population stable. Worse still, a research brief by the Institute for Family Studies asked childless adults if they were planning on having children. And one in four of those people said they were not planning on doing so. If we shave another 25% off of that number, our replacement rate falls to about 1.05 which is just over half of where we need to be to successfully stabilize the population over time. So at this point, you may be asking yourself, why does this even matter? Couldn't it be a good thing if the world, and America in particular, has less people? What about climate change, or financial security, or world hunger, or electricity? If we had less people, wouldn't those problems all improve? Wouldn't we be better off to take our limited resources and spread them across people more equally? And there's an appeal to this, certainly, particularly with how broadly those in our expert ruling classes and the mob that enforce them have pushed this. But these are false assertions. First, the fact that people are telling people en masse that the world would be better off with less people in it, the fact that people are telling you that they should be happy with people dying off and not being able to produce more of them, is disgusting, sick, and twisted. People are wonderful. Children are wonderful. The best way to measure the quality of your life is by measuring the quality of your relationships with other human beings. Having less of them is a tragedy. Anyone who knowingly celebrates it is deeply perverse and twisted. Second, while there are people that say this, we must not ignore the people that say the exact opposite of this. Take Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, for example. In their book, The Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, the husband and wife science team break down the greatest ability that humans have had throughout the ages down to one factor, adaptation. Throughout the ages, Human beings have had a remarkable ability to adapt to changes throughout the world, ranging from extreme weather to natural disasters to sociopathic dictators. The human race is many things, but it is certainly not inflexible. Third, there have been people screaming wildly about this for years, that we'll run out of food, destroy the world, burn forests to the ground, etc. if we keep going at the rate that we are, that we'll run out of oil by the year 2000 and have to start eating our own babies or something. People like Al Gore and Thomas Malthus come to mind when they say things like this. And these have been proven time and time again to not just be false, but outrageously false. There comes a time we must let the apocalypse crier in Times Square and the psychopathic rapture predictor in the University Union be left to their delusions. They'd probably like it better anyways. This, therefore, 
is an unbelievably huge problem. Our population is headed straight for a brick wall. A sudden lack of people in society will result in our economy bottoming it out from under us due to a lack of employees needed to support its infrastructure. It will result in more inept people obtaining positions of power due to a lack of competition from others who may be more competent. It will increase division and tribalism between and inside of nations. In short, a new world order is coming, and it won't be one that any of us will be fond of. The burden is on young people to figure out a solution to this problem. Old people have to die, but young people don't have to not reproduce. We're not holding up our end of the bargain. To the point of Swan's research, it is not all the deliberate fault of young people that our reproduction rate in America is collapsing. Science does not have a role to play in this, and a very bit does have a role to play in this, excuse me, and a very big one at that. However, there are cultural trends that must be taken into account as well. There are certain patterns in society that are occurring both with men and with women that are protracting this trend. So therefore, it is not either just men or just women to fix this problem. Both genders must play a role in its resolution. We do need two to tango in this scenario, as it tunes out. But, as common sense will tell you, men and women are different. Consequently, the causes of the shift in culture are different for men and women as well. There are very specific causes and very specific effects for each sex that we need to take into consideration in order to see what is going on with each other. Only when we run fair and proper diagnostics tests on both of them will we be able to effectively develop potential solutions to the biggest hidden problem of our age and, hopefully, get us back on the right track. We will need to get to the, expan we will get to the expanding consequences of these trends later on. However, an important point must be made first. Men and women cannot be islands. In my estimation and from what I've seen, we're getting to a point where men and women are getting more and more isolated from one another. To compound this, it seems that, on more and more occasions, men and women are getting more angry with each other. This is far from optimal when talking about long-term population stability and reproductive health and ability. Men and women need each other for survival and companionship as much as we need them for prolonging the human race. Only through the practice of self-awareness can we effectively see what problems are both contributing to the relationships between men and women and how they affect the society at large. Our path to do this is simple, but not easy. And to start, we must see how infertility affects both men and women in their own unique ways. Afterwards, we will take what we've learned from the work of Dr. Swan and the analysis of the broader culture and see the dramatic and devastating consequences that will inevitably come with the fallout of both. So, in the words of the immortal Mark Hanna, let's fuck. Or not, in this case. Act 1. The Cliff In the 1967 film The Graduate, Benjamin Braddock, the character that launched the career of a then young and unknown actor named Dustin Hoffman, is a confused young person who has many similar traits as many confused young people of today. He's not really sure what his college education has truly gotten him. He's overwhelmed with the expectations of people that expect so much from him. And, most importantly, he has no fucking clue what to do with his life. But alas, a solution presents itself. While frequenting at a party with his parents and their wealthy friends, a successful and wealthy businessman, Mr. McGuire, begins to court Braddock and let him in on a highly confidential secret that is about to drop a nuke on modern business. Steering him away from the partygoers that do nothing but ambush him about a future he knows nothing about, 
McGuire parks their conversation by the pool, a stream of shit aggressively flowing at the mouth as he babbles almost nonsensically about the crown jewel of a secret. Eventually wearing him down, Braddock is able to get McGuire to let him in on it. In a hushed tone and through tightly Botoxed lips, the business magnate says the secret in a mere one word. Plastics. Slightly taken aback, Braddock looks at McGuire with a stunned look in his eyes. To further his shock, McGuire face, McGuire's face is stone cold. He means every bit of that one word he just dropped onto Braddock. Telling him to think about it even more, as he, more than he has as of now, McGuire shakes his hand and leaves, never to be seen by the viewer, and probably Benjamin Braddock, again. The craziest thing about this scene is that not that it's from one of the funniest and most iconic movies and in one of the most funny and iconic moments of that movie. The craziest thing about the scene is that everything that McGuire said to Benjamin Braddock turned out to be completely true. It's hard to believe, especially as a Gen Zer, but back in those days, it was not very common to have things made out of plastic. It was much more common to have them be made out of another, potentially more hazardous material. Quite literally everything was made out of something such as aluminum, iron, or wood. And then capitalism happened. Seeing that making lots of common household items out of expensive and raw commodities wasn't a very good model for profit margins, companies and corporations in the space began to do research and development into things that could decrease their bottom line and bump their profits. Eventually, after years of trial and error, these companies began to see a trend. That trend, which reshaped the modern consumer landscape as we knew it, turned out to be the exact same thing that McGuire predicted to Benjamin Braddock. Plastics. Plastics, made primarily from crude oil and other natural resources, became a cheaper and easily disposable way to accomplish the tasks of everyday home life. They could be easily cleaned, were lightweight, and were far less dangerous than the toys of a bygone era for children. Corporations, once they discovered how much money they could be made from the manufacturing of these goods, absolutely blitzkrieged the marketplace. Everything that could be made into plastic was made into plastic. Everything that could not was either abandoned, outsourced, or turned into a luxury item for someone else to make. Soon, America went from bricks and mortar to being absolutely coated with polymers and matted finish. The transformation and the market adoption was nothing short of remarkable. But unbeknownst amidst the excitement of plastics entering the mainstream, no one knew at the time that the societal transformation would be remarkable in another way. Shortly after the vast adoption of plastics in the 1970s, sperm counts in American and Western males began to slowly drop. As the market for plastics became ubiquitous with our lives, sperm counts began to drop increasingly quickly. Fifty years after the monumental shift in American life, we're now at a reproductive and population crisis. Fifty years after the monumental shift in American life, we're now more ingrained with plastics than almost any other common good in the world. Now, this may not appear to most people as a mere coincidence. After all, causation does not necessarily equal correlation. Nonetheless, even though two factors may or may not be linked, we would be remiss if we did not at least investigate the two variables to see if there is a link between the two. And fortunately, Dr. Shanna Swan and her team saved us a lot of trouble in doing the work for us. In their research, Swan and her team discovered an interesting phenomenon. Plastics, while being primarily made from the materials described above, are also sprinkled with other chemicals to help improve things such as durability and flexibility. One of those kind of chemicals that are thrown into the mix are called phthalates. Phthalates, a chemical compound of phthalic acid, 
are using the manufacture of plastics to help redefine, refine them excuse me, into consumer goods. Without them, the products we see on the shelves would not be nearly as polished. They are an essential ingredient. However, phthalates can also can do other things when coming into contact with humans. Those, quote, other things occur mostly in the human endocrine system, the biological system which regulates hormones. Hormones, i.e. our sex chemicals, define us as men and women by either the production of estrogen, women, or testosterone, men. They are perhaps the single most effective indicator of the differentiators between men and women at the biological level that we have to work with. When phthalates come into contact with our endocrine systems through our bloodstream, they wreak havoc. In women, there is data that has been shown to lower both sexual desire and satisfaction. However, it is men that have the most to lose the wide adoption of plastics and phthalates. In men, multiple studies, most notably the ones conducted by Dr. Swan and her team, have shown devastating results to the male fertility and reproductive system. When males are introduced to large amounts of phthalates, i.e. every male in the civilized United States, their endocrine system goes haywire. The quality of their semen goes down. Their DNA quality embedded in their genes goes down. Sperm motility and volume goes down. All of these things have led to Swan's findings and is the single leading biological indicator of the tailspin that men's reproductive health has been thrown into. In addition to this, there are several other factors that affect more men than women. The most notable of these factors is obesity. More men are obese than women. Obesity, as shown in the studies, helps compound the effects of phthalates on endocrine systems. Even without the introduction of phthalates, an unhealthy lifestyle kills sperm incredibly fast due to the sperm spikes not wanting to pass on bad reproductive genes to offspring. Therefore, male obesity and poor lifestyle choices compound the problem and make it perpetuate past the point of mere chemical exposure. Scarejet? We should be. Men are one half of sexual reproduction, if you weren't aware. If more than half of men's natural ability to sexually reproduce is actually occurring, that is a major problem for the rest of the population. Men have always been the instigators of sexual connection. We've been the ones to spread our seed by willingly engaging with women and showing off our competence and dominant traits that we bring to the sexual marketplace. If those things are rapidly taken away, it will take an incredible amount of resilience to pull men back from the brink, even if we are correct in our assumption that adaptation is the strongest focal point of the human biological condition. Therefore, the most notable trend in the population dilemma in terms of men is the biological aspect. Even though the culture of male pursuit has changed, and believe me, we're talking about this in a second too, the dramatic drop-off in sperm counts is nothing short of incredible to witness. If this trend continues at the pace that it is, our population will be put in incredibly, an incredibly perilous situation. But as much of it's a bucket and rainbow and unicorns to talk about the biological aspect, something else must be touched upon as well. It would be too easy for men to simply take the data from the studies and use that to write themselves off as helpless in the sexual marketplace. But that would be untrue. A far more uncomfortable conversation, on the other hand, is the one that is currently taking place among men in the social aspect of sexual selection and reproduction. There is a trend going on with American men right now that people shy away from even more than that of their reproductive health. And that trend is this. The Social Isolation of Men from Society The thing that no one talks about, the thing that men are ashamed to talk about, is that they have been slowly and slowly pulling back from the world at large. Men, due to an impotence and inability to face the world and all of its horror, 
have found other venues in order to sate their basic human desires. Dating apps have given men the ability to talk to any woman in the world and never have to meet them in real life and risk getting rejected. Their text bubbles will do just fine. It's given them the ability to see more naked women having sex in five minutes than most men of history could have seen in 500 years and never have to risk the chance of shame by fucking any of them. The right hands will do just fine. It's given them the ability to create a complete virtual reality of game and life where they can fully immerse themselves as the gods of their own universe. Their imaginations, not reality, will do just fine. These trends, all of mass adoption in the last 10 years, have played a dramatic role in the voluntary withdrawal of men from the sexual marketplace. This shows in every trend that is related to the field you can think of. Young men in America are having less sex than at any other point in history. They're not going on actual dates. They're sure as hell not getting married. They're not having children. All things that used to give so much and still give so much meaning to men are being evaporated quickly by modern men. This is, in my opinion, an equally concerning issue as the problems that men are currently running into with their endocrine systems and fertility. Men have always instigated sexual situations with women. It is not up to women to go up to men and get them to romantically attract themselves to you. For most of history, it was far too dangerous for them to even attempt to do this. But just because the times have changed does not mean the rules, generally, have not. There are always some ex exceptions to this, but they are very few and even further in between. Perhaps no one is as brave or insightful, and most likely the former, to point this out as our friend J.D. Vance. Currently running for Senate in my home state of Ohio, Vance ruffled a lot of feathers when he proclaimed that he wanted to ban pornography due to the issue of men not, you know, having sex with actual women. One of the drivers of this opinion was due to the low birth rates that he's seeing throughout America. The writing, in his eyes, is on the wall. Much outrage was made of Vance's comments. Some called him a hypocrite for wanting to ban pornography but not wanting to ban guns. I suppose that's a claim that could be made, although I view it as an almost parody-esque and highly stupid one. But just because people hated what Vance said did not mean that what Vance said was wrong. Because, in actuality, what Vance said was 100% accurate. The combined failure of both male biology and male aggression in the dating market will completely cut off sexual reproduction from happening. Men are failing both actively and passively in inciting the future of our civilization. Our environments and the exposure to horrific things like pornography certainly doesn't don't help matters. But men refusing to help themselves doesn't either. The blame for the cliff that the population is running over is almost exclusively laying at the feet of men, no matter how unfair or, un or fair that claim is to make. However, as we said and as common sense tells us, it takes more than two to tango in the field of sexual reproduction. Even though men have more to contend with as far as blame in this area, women are far from blameless. Women, like men, have also changed a lot recently. And with those changes, there are consequences that equalize them. As it turns out, women are playing a very large role in the decline of fertility, albeit less so, as men. But just in the same vein as women being different from men, the factors that are causing women to impact the decline in human fertility are as well. And, unlike men, what they fell into was much more vicious. Lies.
Act two, boss bitch. It's no secret to anyone aware of it that women have always had it harder than men in terms of the relations between the sexes. The amount of risk to their lives and well-being compared to men is so stark that it's almost insulting to call it a comparison in the first place. Men don't have to worry about pregnancy. They don't have to worry nearly as much about genital health. They don't have to worry as much about STIs and how it affects the rest of their body. Perhaps even more importantly, the social cost for women entering the sexual marketplace is much greater than men. Men have had the luxury of being able to roam the world throughout history and not worry as much about what other men thought about them. It was just, and still is, what men do. That is the nature of how men's sexuality has always worked. Women, on the other hand, aren't as lucky. They have to worry about how both men and women perceive them because of the stated and traditional roles around how women's sexual activity is perceived. Therefore, if something unfavorable about them gets out, they tend to get walloped for it in much more brutal and merciless fashion than men could ever dream of being. This is a very fair, unfair thing, but it is the way these things tend to work. Eventually, however, women got a reprieve from both the biological and societal pressure. In the 1960s and 70s, women received two godsends, the sexual revolution and second-wave feminism. The sexual revolution, for the first time in their genealogical history, gave women the ability to have near-total control around their fertility and reproductive systems. Coming in the form of the birth control pill and contraceptives, women, for the first time, had options. For the first time, they were on equal footing with men in the sexual marketplace. For the first time, they were allowed to have their say in their own biological ownership. Second-wave feminism, in conjunction with birth control, did a tremendous service to women for the reason that it gave them permission to do things that they could have never done before. Now, women could enter the workforce and contribute to capitalism and the economy. No longer were they shackled to cleaning and cupcakes. Now, they can go play the game that men had always played, that of earning their way to power and prestige in the broader culture. Whenever something new is introduced, it is nearly impossible for it not to grow. As the sexual revolution and second-wave feminism took hold in society, their population, or their popularity, excuse me, exploded as they became more broadly accepted. Women took their newly captured lightning in a bottle and used it to power the next 60 years of American femininity. Women, initially coming in as copywriters and secretaries, began to prove their competence in more areas of business and work. After a few decades of toiling in corporate obscurity, women finally began to gain respect in the marketplace. They started becoming directors and vice presidents. Glass ceilings were shattered when women entered the boardroom in the chief executive suite. They finally had what they wanted. Equality to men in their ability to enter and dominate in the sport of business. As this demographic trend continued, capitalism began adapting to it in other ways. Advertising and marketing firms began to pump out pro-feminist content more than ever before. Women spokespeople were used to lift up the next generation of women to break out of their former shackles and embrace the new lifestyle that they had prior. Corporate feminist icons such as Sheryl Sandberg and Whitney Wolfe began to not only act as corporate executives, but open advocates towards women to shun the former patriarchal lens of society and embrace a, quote, new femininity. And women did. They bought this definition of a new womanhood hook, line, and sinker. Conversely, they also seemed to completely forsake the olden days, where women were forced to look forward to being homemakers, mothers, and wives, before CEOs, management consultants, or technology sales executives. 
Those ideas, according to the cultural trend, were outdated. It's much better to be in a meeting than to be at your daughter's soccer game. There will always be another soccer game. There might never be a business transaction of this magnitude until next quarter. You should be able to tell which one can wait. What are you, some sort of misogynist? The women that have embraced new femininity the most are the young. Young women, those who knew no life that was an alternative to it, are completely surrounded by this no longer new environment. They've come to hate how women were treated in the past. They've learned to loathe both the system that promoted it and the women that participated in it. They're a part of the problem. They're still holding on. Getting married? What, what's the rush? I have my whole life for that. Having ch children? I'll freeze my eggs. I'll still be good for a few years. Settling down? Nah, I have all the time in the world for that. This is potentially all fine and good. Women have the freedom and sovereignty to make whatever decisions about their lives they want to make. But we must ask a question, one that everyone these days seems to be afraid to ask. Is what is being said actually true? Are women actually better off or happier with this new version of femininity? Are they living more fulfilling lives? Is the old way, the one that gets demonized so frequently, really as bad for women as it's claimed to be? No matter what you think the answer is, you must admit that the fact that these questions have not been asked in any remotely open capacity is a bit strange. In a world that seems to want women to be liberated and allow them to have choice, it seems that, in this particular area, it isn't the case. Any person that mentions it, and even more so with any woman that mentions it, is automatically decried and denounced. No one, it seems, is allowed to, quote, advocate for women when that advocacy isn't liked by the people pushing the dominant cultural narrative. I am not at all suggesting that we return to a day and age where American women are cudgeled and near blackmailed into going in a box they wish not to be in. Many women should be employed in positions of authority, influence, and power because many women have the capacity and competency and capability to do this position's justice. Women have been a very big net positive, particularly recently, to the workforce. They've started companies, added value to businesses large and small, and have added skills inherent to women that men lack, such as compassion and openness to diverse thoughts and ideas. But that does not answer the question we asked. The answer to the question we asked is not as cut and dry as the people that push the opposite would have us believe. In many ways, the trends that have affected women in the last half century have been remarkably positive. However, in many ways, the boss bitch mentality has come back to haunt them. The reasoning behind this claim is that, in large part, the boss bitch mentality is largely based on a lie. And that lie is this. Nothing that was done by women in the past can make you happy in the present. Modern women, particularly young modern women, have been spoon-fed a bucket of shit by people who wish to control them. The big lie, the cultural line of bullshit that has been thrown into the sea of womanhood, is that everything that women did in the past is insufficient for happiness in the present. They have bought the lie that getting married, having kids, and settling down to a comfortable life is a bad thing. Instead, it is a stark contrast. Not only is it a bad thing, but it's inherently bigoted and oppressive to tell women that embodying traditional femininity can provide value to their lives. Instead, what culture has told young women is that they can, quote, wait until later. They can freeze their eggs. They can wait until they're, quote, financially stable to settle down somewhere, buy a house, get married, and have and raise children. They need to, quote, put themselves first and, quote, work on their careers. This is what women have been told. 
but it is a lie. It is a cultural mind fuck and warp. One of the most influential books I've ever read, one that I recommend every young person to read, is The Defining Decade by Meg Jay. It's an absolutely wonderful book that issues a dire and important warning to young people. Meg Jay, in a complete opposite to the cultural narrative, takes the stance that your 20s are something that you cannot get back. You can't, quote, wait until later. The only thing you can't get back is your time. And to set yourself up for the rest of your life, there is no more important time than your 20s. Your 20s is when you begin to establish your career. It is where you build your basis for your financial well-being. It is where you shed friends of adolescence and develop friends for adulthood. It's where your values begin to crystallize. It's where you fully mature and begin to realize what's important. It's where you meet people who are going to be tremendously important to you for the rest of your life. To say that your 20s are years that you can just dick around and waste is a statement of unbelievably profound ignorance. However, there was one trend throughout Jay's research, which consisted of interviewing several people in her psychology practice and currently in their 20s, that stunned me. In her research, I learned that a woman's fertility peaks at the age of 28. I couldn't believe it when I read it. Looking around my personal life, I hardly saw a single woman of that age that was even remotely ready to have a child, let alone actually doing the deed and pumping one out of her body. Jay saw this problem as well and was equally as troubled. She, to her credit, asked her young 20-something female patients about this. The saddest part was that, after Jay conducted her interviews, they all knew. Nearly every one of these women who were forsaking their fertility for being a boss bitch knew that it was eventually going to come back and sting like a motherfucker when the reality bit them in the ass. They weren't stupid, because most women are not stupid. They knew their bodies and what they were capable of. But they still ignored it. Instead, what many women are opting for is the other option, delays and treatments. They freeze their eggs. When they inevitably run into trouble conceiving them after they're, quote, ready to do so, they rush to their doctors and beg them for help. They ask them to wash their sins clean when they willingly committed them. They shell out tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars, dollars that they paid with the time that they chose to pursue capitalistic gains other than further their own families and legacies, to have doctors throw different types of procedures at them and pray that they work. And some of these treatments, fortunately, work. But success is far from guaranteed. At the very least, it proves to be much harder to conceive a child, even with treatment, when women wait to do so. The pricing component, whether people choose to talk about it or not, matters immensely as well. So many women are priced out of the market, even with their boss bitch salaries to throw at it. It's not nearly as accessible a pathway as the culture would have you believe. A woman getting priced out of the market for her own children is not just an act of fate and time. It is an act of cruelty and injustice. The pain that all of these women feel when their bodies cannot do what they're meant to do cuts very deep. The pain that they feel when they've defeminized, been defeminized in the most basic biological sense is incomprehensible, particularly by men. Which all leads to perhaps the saddest consequence of the boss bitch mentality. The isolation. The reality is that men want women who act like women. They do not want to date the account executive, the CFO, the marketing executive. They want women who are feminine, who will have their children, and will be supporting wives. Men, at the end of the day, don't give a fuck about how much money women make or how many letters they have behind their name in a LinkedIn profile. They only care about what men have always cared about, women being their compliments, which means women being women. Women are not meant to be men. 
men are not meant to be women. We all have our own niches and roles that we need to inhabit and play. When they do not, bad things begin to happen. The social order and relative peace that men and women have with one another begins to erode. Animosity begins to arise. And, most importantly, entitlement begins to set in. When coming upon this realization, many women have the natural reaction of entitlement. They feel that men have spurned them, so they begin to up the arms race. They work even harder. They try to look hotter. They, quote, pop off even more than they have before. They get all their girls, all their fellow boss bitches, to, quote, yas queen them into the Instagram comments. And some of this is warranted. This is a very natural reaction to getting your advances spurned en masse by people who you desperately want to woo. However, this does not help matters at all. Their entry level into the sexual marketplace continues to be stunted. They're too busy stunning with their girls in a world of fantasy to deal with their very real problems in reality. All because of a lie. One big lie that has contributed to the silent unhappiness of thousands of women throughout our culture. To all of our detriment. No matter how little men control their own biologies, at least honesty is present. Unfortunately for women of today, they don't even have that luxury. That, in combination with the problems of men's sexual marketplace issues, have led to nothing short of absolute catastrophe. Act 3. Runneth over. The good and the bad of this issue is that people are finally starting to notice the ticking nuclear bomb that we all seem to be standing on. However, unfortunately for all of us, those cries are being muffled by any and everyone prominent who opposes them. The most famous and vocal person that has voiced concerned over this issue has been Elon Musk. The Tesla founder has expressed repeatedly in interviews and through social media that the falling birth rates in the world absolutely terrify him. He has moved it above climate change and nuclear war as the single greatest threat facing our society. He has good reasoning for doing this, as explained. Even though climate change and nuclear war, especially now, should be taken seriously, population collapse is the most imminent and most terrifying, and can also lead to an acceleration of both of those other undesirable outcomes. Another recent addition to sounding the alarm on the threat of population decay is media firebrand Jordan Peterson. If anyone needed another reason to hate him, this would certainly be it. He sees what Elon Musk has seen and, like Musk, thinks it's going to be result in absolute catastrophe. Peterson has been on a crusade recently, warning about it in numerous outlets, particularly with podcasters and friends Chris Williamson and Joe Rogan. These two men, as well as others for, that have, have spoke about this, got a tremendous amount of shit for it. The reasoning for this is unclear. In my personal opinion, it's because of our, the ineptitude of our leadership around the world. They're too busy dealing with fake problems to contend with dealing with a real one. I have a good feeling that the prospect of this issue is so daunting that they're willingly choosing not to look at it. They know that they've all caused it. They know that they fucked up. And they know that the only way back for any of them is to sweep it under the rug, to hide it, to make sure that it never sees the light of day. But we must talk about it. We can't go much farther in the direction we're going in without throwing our species into a tailspin. But to move towards anything, we need to realize the alternatives of what will happen should we keep on the path we're on, if we choose to not look at the issue honestly. Even though it's hard to stomach, 
The plummeting of human fertility and the lack of interaction between men and women in the sexual marketplace must be discussed. The consequences must be laid bare for all to see, or the motivation to fix it will not happen until it's already too late to do so. The first major consequence is just what Musk and Peterson were alluding to, the complete and total collapse of the population of the human race. The numbers are clear, as mentioned earlier. The majority of the population is old. Old people have less years to live than young people do. Most of the people in that age bracket will die within the next 20 to 30 years. This will leave a massive gap in humans needed to replace the ones that have departed us. But young people are not holding up their end of the bargain. Due to a combination of biological and cultural trends mentioned, young adult humans are not producing children. At the current rate we're going, we will have 25% less humans being populating America, beings populating America after those 20 to 30 years than we have before. Many of those people we will lose will still be very prominent in our society. It will, end up being, it will be up to the current young people to fill these roles. However, there's one very important variable that we're not attending to. Who will fill the roles that we leave behind? And the answer is that we don't know. We certainly hope will be our children and their children after that. But the signs of that happening are looking more and more grim by the day. The young people who have the ability to have children are not having children. Those children that they are not having will not be nearly enough to replace the adults that are having them. This is important for a very practical reason. Think of the jobs that young people inhabit now. They're mostly entry or low-level jobs that support the leadership of organizations across the world. Those people will eventually work their way up to take the places of those that have the experience of doing those jobs already. But if we do not have anyone to fill the bottom of the ladder, how can we expect the leadership to be supported? Everyone has a very important role to play within the function, functioning of anything requiring multiple people. But there are some people that are more important than others, certainly. However, there is no one that is unimportant, especially the people on the front lines who are just getting started and trying to prove themselves. This will lead to the failure of organizations across the world due to not having a steady pipeline of talent to support their growth and maintenance. A drying up of talented people will mean that wealth will begin to evaporate. Without people to run and support companies their ingenuity and labor, companies will be forced to evaporate all their savings and earnings to plow back into businesses to save their dying organizations. In addition, older people are not the ones who do the job of maintaining the earth. They are not the first responders, the farmers, the ranchers, the laborers, and all those who provide our basic needs and services for us. We cannot rely on old people to do those jobs because old people can't do those jobs. In some areas of the world economic system, young people are the only people that can do certain things. In these specific cases, they are the most important things. The food has to get to our table somehow, our bridges have to stay up, our streets have to stay safe. If these things do not happen, bad things will take their place. That bad thing, other than the evaporation of employment, ingenuity, and wealth from our existing future institutions, will be anarchy that comes from the evaporations of employment, ingenuity, and wealth from our existing and future institutions. Human beings need reliable structure. We don't do well when we cannot trust the people and organizations in a position of power. We're finding that out the hard way in the United States right now. When our institutions begin to fail en masse, people would begin to rise up to express both their dissatisfaction and hunger for change. When the ability to successfully maintain a society goes away, it opens the door for bad actors to come and corrupt it. We've seen this happen in the Netherlands and even more terrifyingly in Sri Lanka. When institutions fail, 
The citizens that depend on them feel that they can no longer trust them. When citizens feel like they can no longer trust their institutions, they foolishly attempt to get rid of them in an attempt to make their own. When they attempt to make their own, they unleash a greater vice on the world. Incompetence. It's one thing for institutions to fail. It's a whole other when they're stupid. Stupid institutions run by stupid leadership are a recipe for societal collapse and social decay that will descend into rampant and violent tribalism. Without the ample bodies necessary to support our vast infrastructure our country has built up, that infrastructure will be put on a conveyor belt that heads right off a cliff. Running congruent with this will be the further acceleration of angst between men and women. Healthy reproduction is the number one sign of a healthy relationship between the sexes. Generally, if a lot of naked people of one gender are willingly fondling with a lot of naked people from another gender, this is a good sign. When they're not, that leads to some troubling questions that need to be asked, with the most important one being, what happens when things get worse? Everyone can feel the edginess between men and women right now, and not in the fun and kinky and sexy way. In the last few decades of America, and particularly in the last 10, in the last 10 years, Trust in the opposite sex has deteriorated on both sides. Trump, Me Too, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, Will Smith, the transgender movement, and so many other things have been just a few of the reasons. Men and women don't trust each other nearly as much as they did before. No one's role is defined anymore. No one knows the position to play because so few know how to play the game that has just been made up. It's not good for society when men and women don't interact with one another, and particularly when they don't fuck one another. It's a disaster sign for the health of our social fabric. When men and women don't commingle and go through life together, we burrow deeper into the tribes of each gender. We begin to despise the opposite sex because of our skewed perception of how they actually interact with one another. When men and women don't get along, when they're always at each other's throats, it's highly unlikely that they'll have sex with one another, at least in a non-Stephen Hyde, Samantha type scenario. When men and women don't have sex, Odds are it's because some other factor is inhibiting them from doing so. This spells disaster both for civil order and the future of our country. Men and women need each other, and need to fuck each other. When they can do neither, the future of the human population is put into peril. Finally, there is one last consequence that will happen because of humanity's plummeting fertility. As you mentioned before, a good metric to base your life on is how good your relationships with other human beings are. If your life is good, you probably have good relationships with other human beings. If your life sucks, your relationships with human beings probably suck. In our specific context of our future fertility and survival of our species, it is important that we not discount the one thing that must proceed both from happening, our happiness and our values. Now, if you've been following me for a while, you know I'm not the happiness guy. I leave that to Tony Robbins or Gary Vee or some other whack job to spread that shit around online forums. But... If those two and others like them are right about one thing, it is that being happy in life is a good and important thing. And if we combine that truth with the truth stated about human relationships, we will unearth a crucial revelation. If our quality of life and happiness are measured by our relationships with other people, then it is a safe assumption to say that, when our population decline occurs, humankind will be remarkably less happy than we are right now. And that's saying something, especially with how miserable everyone seems to be all the fucking time. For all the actual happiness guys out there, the fact that they're not talking about this phenomenon is both strange and not strange at the same time. Additionally, if you ask any parent the answer you truthfully, 
Their relationships with other people, and more importantly, their children, will be paramount on their things that they value. For most sane people, it doesn't even come close. And this begs one final question. What happens when we replace those things with other things? We've seen a sample size of this going on in our culture. It's not good. COVID proved that. When we isolate ourselves and fill ourselves on mental, physical, and spiritual junk food, we fuck ourselves over tremendously. When we replace things of value in our lives, the things that are incredibly empty and shallow, we will immediately begin to experience abject misery. This kills all aspiration and hope for the future. Hope is built on the promise of something potentially getting better. But if we do not see anything that can make things get better, including that of the future of our population, we will stop trying to make the future better entirely. All innovation will cease. We won't try to improve anything anymore. We won't reach out to help others because we will have to sit with the sadness that we can no longer even help ourselves. That is true hopelessness. And that, should we keep going down this path, is our final destination. Our lack of attention towards things that actually matter will be the downfall of the human race. Nothing matters more than other humans. Our inability to produce other humans, stemming from terrible trends in both biology and culture, is inhibiting our very survival. Men and women must work together to address both their own sides of this issue and move forward towards reconciliation with one another, or we will not have a future. Instead, we will have a fast descent into hedonism, hopelessness, and vitriol, with our collective demise waiting for us at the bottom. The courage to change course, make adjustments, and achieve self-awareness is the only thing that can save us. And if we are to do that saving, it must begin now. Or, in the other words of the immortal Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical. Okay, I hope you guys are, I, I truly hope you guys are significantly depressed at this point, because I am, because reading it was just as tough as writing it. But anyway, guys, I think that it's, it's just... It's important to think about the things that are important. Like, I mean, that, like the fact that hardly any of you have probably looked at this issue in depth or that not a lot of people are seeing that these things are happening is, is just, it, it's not good. It's, it's, it's not good. We'll say, we'll, say, we'll say that to be frank about it. But again, all I'm asking, just think about these things. Think about what they mean. Think about your own life and how you're living it. How are you defining your life by? Where are your relationships with other people at? All that other good stuff. So Thanks for listening, guys. I appreciate it as always. Until next week, own the day, open your mind. Talk to you guys soon. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?